0: Good morning. I'm Adam Herman. Today we'll be reading from Matthew eighteen, one to fourteen. And you can find that on page eight hundred and twenty-three of the Pew Bibles. Matthew chapter eighteen, verses one to fourteen. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them Has gone astray does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray and if he finds it truly I say to you he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray so it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish this is the word of the Lord Thanks Adam.
1: Good morning. Hey there, I'm Jimmy and uh, privileged to be on the teaching team here. Hey, happy October. It's good to see everybody in the month of October. It's always a special month. You know, you feel, uh, I just really enjoy the weather. I enjoy everything about October, but I really enjoy the fact that it's pastor appreciation month. I don't know if you knew that pastor appreciation month is like mother's day. Every day should be mother's day, right? Uh, I like the fact that there's a month, but every week should be a chance just to actually appreciate your pastors. We've been blessed here in this church with some great pastors. I would encourage you to do something this month to encourage them. It might be just a note that you write them. It might be a gift card, something. Just just know that it's Pastor Appreciation Month. We've been blessed with great pastors in this church, and so let's just make sure that they know that they're appreciated. Is that a deal? Is that a deal? Yeah. All right, enthusiastic. All right, let, let, let me pray, and then we'll jump in here. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for that great commissioning time, um, just for Justin and for Grace and what a joy it is to send them out. Father, uh, we come to a tough passage because there are some things in here that might make us a bit uncomfortable. There's a lot of questions which confront us every day that are raised in this passage. So we pray that as we look at it that your Holy Spirit would lead and guide and that we would truly be able to see greatness and what it means to be great in the eyes of God and what it means to be great truly, truly in this world um, as we keep our eyes upon Jesus. So be glorified in this time, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to share with you a story which I think just gives so much of the point of this text. There I know it's Pastor Appreciation Month and the first part of the story is a little disparaging towards pastors, but the second half will be very encouraging, all right? There's a pastor's conference that takes place, and it's a well-known conference. There's thousands of folks that watch this online, and it's a conference in which a group of pastors, very well-known, great in the eyes of the world, come together, and they talk about very, very difficult subjects. And if I said the names of these pastors, a lot of you would know, you know, what every one of them. So they come together, and they have a chance just to walk through some hard topics, and uh, it's just an interesting forum to to bring up some things that you wouldn't ordinarily talk about. Afterwards, they go to this room in the hotel just to kind of review the conference, and uh, they're there, and they're talking, and they have a little food there just to kind of have as they go through the conference and process it, and one guy just kind of flicks some of the food at this other guy, the other guy, you know, kind of grabs a little handful of this and looks at the back of this other guy, and uh, some of the other guys, you know, start to throw the food around, and the guy that has been hired by this group to run this conference is a friend of mine, and he's there in the room, and he just kind of stops him and says, hey, if we keep going, who, who's going to clean this up? And they say, that's, that's what the maids are for, and they have an all-out food fight and basically trash a hotel room. Meanwhile, across town, there's a pastor-serve conference. I'm very privileged to work with a group called Pastor Serve. We get to serve pastors and just encourage them. So we are across town, and we've had a conference. And the last speaker at our conference is the pastor. The pastor's the church where the conference is being hosted. It's a large church. Um, he's, He's an incredible pastor. He gives a great closing talk. And so afterwards, we stand around for a little bit, and... There's a point in which we have to leave. And so we walk out, you know, we kind of talk outside for just a little bit. We hop in our cars. I see this pastor get, I mean, like he hops in his car and we all leave. And it was like, man, that was a great conference. We've been gone about 15 minutes and a guy, uh, uh, he just says, oh, I, I forgot my Bible. I forgot my Bible. And I've got some stuff on my Bible I have to have. We're like, oh. So we turn around and we go back to this church. The lead pastor of this church who gave our last talk, we, we, we walk in to find this Bible, and the chairs are all being put back, and this guy, Randy, is vacuuming the floor. It's like, wait a second, I thought we saw him drive away. And it was, it was awkward. It was this awkward moment of, hi, hi, Randy, and you could tell that he was very embarrassed. He was very embarrassed, but he's vacuuming. And so we leave, and that's that. And the next day, I'm back at the church to meet with some staff, and I see Randy's assistant. And I said, hey, yesterday we were at the conference. We're all done. I saw Randy get into his car. We came back to the church to get Wesley's Bible, and Randy is vacuuming. What's up with that? And she laughed and said, you know, we tell Randy, Randy, you don't have to do this. But every week, he insists on us giving him some job around the church that he will do that nobody will see. This church where he's at has 20 full-time custodial staff. 20. It's a huge church. But, but she said every week he wants to have some job that he can do completely behind the scenes that nobody will know about. Because he wants to remind himself that the greatest way that he can lead is to serve. Wow. It's incredible. I'll never forget that. Because I thought that's, that's a leader. That is a great leader. It's a great leader who understands that the way to really lead and to be great is to serve. And you don't have to serve up in front. You don't have to be in a place where everybody calls you great, but you'd have a chance simply to serve. And so we come to this passage about greatness. I want to make sure I'm sure that you have the context. So we're in the midst of Matthew. We've been walking through Matthew, and if you've been here for a while, you know that we've been, you know, slowly at times, but at times it picks up a little bit, we've been going through Matthew. And so we've talked a lot about, just in these past few weeks, about chapter 16 and 17, about the fact that Jesus asked us to take up our cross and to follow him. And then last week we heard from Chris about the fact Jesus, he, he meets our needs, and sometimes it's through... Strange ways, like a coin in the mouth of a fish, but Jesus meets our needs. And so, now for these next few weeks, the next few chapters, we really hit some practical things about okay, what what does it mean to really lead? What does it mean to take up your cross and to follow Him? What does it mean to be great? What does it mean to be a peacemaker? What does it mean to forgive people? We're going to talk about marriage. We'll talk about divorce. We'll we'll talk about singleness. We're going to talk about some very practical things. But he jumps in in this passage into this amazing story about what does it mean to be great? Is it wrong to pursue greatness? Is it wrong to want that? I mean, we we live in a day and age where people are pursuing greatness, especially young people. Over one-third now, if you ask them, what do you want to be when you grow up? Over one-third now social media influencer because it's a a great job. I want to be great. I want to be well-known. I want to be out there. I want the world to know who I am. And this passage is so incredibly practical because it teaches us how to be great. It teaches us so much about how to serve. So I want to kind of walk through three things here, okay? So we're going to walk through the nature of great humility and then the call to great repentance And then a picture of great love. The nature of great humility, the call to great repentance, and then the picture of great love. So first of all, the nature of great humility. I mean, what a powerful passage. The disciples were told in Mark that they're not just talking about this, they're arguing about this. And it couldn't be more inappropriate. Jesus has been teaching about the cross. Jesus has been teaching about the fact that he is just about to suffer, that they're on their way to Jerusalem at this point. He's told them what is yet to come. And they're talking, they're arguing about, hey, who's going to be the greatest? I mean, it couldn't be more inappropriate. I mean, it couldn't be worse timing. Jesus, I'm just about to go to the cross. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. The disciples, hey, Let's figure out who's the greatest. Now keep in mind, it was a very common thing to talk about because spiritual leaders would talk about, hey, once once we die and we go to be with God, who's going to be the closest to God? Who's going to be right there at his right hand? Who's going to be the ones that are absolutely, I mean, just right there? And Jesus is going to give them a very different picture because he's going to call a child unto himself, put that child in the midst and say this, unless you turn and become like children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then this powerful verse in verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So they're arguing over who's the greatest. Jesus answers the question. I want to answer it straight up. You see this child? Whoever becomes like this child, that person will become absolute the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You see, they're arguing because they have this picture that greatness is a thing you fight for. It's like the king of the hill. It's like, I want to pull others down so that I can rise up above them. But it's interesting that I know that so many of us oftentimes are like that. We walk into a room and it's, it's a crowded room and we might look for those people that we think, hey, these are my peers or people maybe I view in my mind a little bit above me. So I want to seek them out. I don't want to seek out people that I would view in my mind to be a little bit lower than me because I want to make sure I spend time with people that can advance myself, can advance me, can advance my overall agenda. Wow. And yet Jesus says, no, that's not it at all. We're going to be able to give our undivided attention to those who can absolutely do nothing for you. And so the best example of this is the children in the week. So Jesus does not dismiss greatness and say that it should not be desired. Instead, he gives us a very, very different picture of greatness. Mark 9 5 The way to be first in God's kingdom is to be the servant of all. The way to be absolute at the very top is to be at the very bottom. It's this tremendous paradox that's standing on its head, truth standing on its head, screaming out for attention, as Chesterton says. It's this paradox of if you want to be first, you need to learn to be last. If you want to be the greatest, you need to learn to be the absolute servant of all. You need to put the needs of others before yourself. You need to turn and become like children. Now for Jesus to grab a little child and to pull this child in their midst, extremely unusual. It's not a child-centric world. Now, so much of what we do is child-centric. We dismiss the kids, that's child-centric, right? So much of what we do is about our kids, but back then it was not about the kids. Kids, you were just really trying to bide your time, wait for them to grow up, because you didn't really want to do things for your kids. As a matter of fact, in this culture, you had the right to murder your children. You might think, well, we still do that now through abortion, But once they were born back then, you could still murder your children. You had the right to do that. Because children were just, in one sense, a throwaway. They weren't given any real strong value. And Jesus makes such a massively powerful statement when he takes this child and brings this child and puts him right in the very midst. And says, you need to be like this child. If you want to be great, have this. What, What does that mean? Children are trusting oftentimes, they're curious, they're extremely dependent. You think about what are the characteristics of a child. Now, Jesus is not saying be childish as those first pastors were in that story. Jesus is saying be childlike. This week I was with a friend and we started to talk and we talked about the first things that we could think back on our life. And this is the very first, first memories of our life. He had a fascinating memory. He said, my first memory of my life was in 1963, me and my dad pulled up at the store that was in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. We pulled up at the store, and there was a sign at all of these parking places. And he said, Daddy, what does that sign say? And his father said, the sign says, whites only. And my friend said, oh, I'm so glad we have a white car so that we can park here. That's childlike. His dad said, son, unfortunately, that's not what that means. And he remembers his dad explaining to him, even at a young age, he remembers his dad explaining to him what that meant. We need to learn to have hearts of children. Childlike, not childish. Childish. And then verse 6, he goes on. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. It's like, wow, that went dark very quickly. It's like, wow, we're kind of talking about children. Then all of a sudden, if you mess with one of these little ones, you're going to be drowned in the sea. Now, it's interesting because this is not talking about just children. In verse 2, 3, 4, and 5, there's a word there for child Patiôn, which means it's just Greek for child. But when he talks about the little ones, it's a macron is the Greek word. It's a very, very different word. And it's a different word that's extremely significant. Because when he talks about this, he is saying, if you cause one of these little ones, and it's a hard word, but the best translation is weak, small, frail, unable to help yourself, look down on oftentimes, short. Jesus is saying to not look down on people that we perceive to be less than ourselves. Don't look down on the weak. Don't look down on the poor. Don't look down on those people that in this life have no status because Jesus is making very clear everyone. Everyone is created in God's image. Therefore, everyone is worthy of respect. Therefore, everyone needs to be looked at in a way that we can have thanks for them. And if you have any status, it is a gift from God. Now, this is so important because in the culture back then, there were certain ways that people would think. If you go back through stories all throughout the Old Testament, you'll see this over and over again. Because the world back then said, hey, listen, God is going to use a certain type of person. God is going to use boys, not girls. God is going to use the strong, not the weak. God is going to use the firstborn, not the secondborn or thirdborn. God is going to use the educated, not the uneducated. God is going to use, you know, I mean, all of these things. So, you know, we want the boys, we want the strong, we want the tall, we want the good looking, we want the wealthy. Aren't you glad that things have changed? Not so much, right? I mean, unfortunately, not so much. Because now, sadly, so often in the world, if you want to get things done, there are people that think, well, you know what? You need the smart, the rich, the really good looking. Those are the people through whom you get things done, the savvy, the successful, the stronger, the richer, the bigger, the taller, the slender, the more educated. We could go on and on. Here's what's fascinating. If you want to do a great Old Testament study. If you're thinking, gosh, I would love to find some study just to work through, spend some time in the Old Testament and go through and see how in almost every story in the Old Testament, and that sounds like an overstatement, but you start through. And you're going to see that there might be people that God is going to choose. And there might be one person that the world says, this is the person to use. This is the strong person. This is the person that's got more strength. This is the better looking person. This is the educated person. This is the older person. You should use that person. And in almost every single case, God says, you know what? I'm going to to go completely the opposite direction. I want to use people to do my work whom the world says these are not the right people. I want to choose the weak oftentimes. I want to choose the frail. I want to choose the downtrodden. I want to choose the second born, the third born to do my work. Just a few stories. God chooses Abel. He doesn't choose firstborn Cain. God chooses Isaac. He does not choose firstborn Ishmael. God says, I want to choose Jacob and not Esau. God uses amazing ways to use Ephraim and not so much Manasseh. Joseph and Judah, both used by God. They weren't the firstborn. It was Reuben, and yet he's not so much used, but it's Joseph and Judah. Is God going to choose attractive Hagar or barren old Sarah? God is going to use barren old Sarah. Is God going to use beauty queen Rachel or the unattractive Leah? He's going to choose Leah to be that crimson thread that weaves through the entire story that ultimately leads to Jesus. God is going to use Moses and not his older brother Aaron. Moses couldn't talk. Moses couldn't do anything. God is going to use Gideon. God is going to say, okay, we need to do this great thing in Israel, so I want to take the weakest tribe, the weakest clan, the weakest family, and the weakest person in that family, that's Gideon. He's the lowest person. I can't choose anybody that's weaker than Gideon, and yet I'm going to use him to do some amazing things to deliver the nation of Israel. Why Gideon? So the fingerprints of God will be all over it. That is why God delights to use the things in this world. He delights to use people that come to him with a childlike heart, that understand we do have weakness, we do have brokenness, we desperately need Jesus. God is going to use David, not his older brothers who were much bigger, much stronger. God is going to use the runt of the family David to do incredible things. You go through the book of Judges. Every judge is from the wrong side of the tracks. Every judge is just so wrong in every way, and yet God uses them over and over again. God is going to use Deborah. God is going to use Esther. We could go on and on in these stories. God delights in doing these types of things. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things of this world. Things that are not to nullify things that are so that no one may boast before him listen, it's not pleasant, I understand that, to be placed amongst the foolish and the weak and the despised and the lowly. Yet this is oftentimes where we find ourselves. Because God does great and awesome things which bring honor to his name through the lowliest of people. God's economy opposes the economy of the world. You know, because God just says, hey, if you're excluded, if you're marginalized, if you're weak, you're going to be able to be used by me. I I, I love this. It's powerful because God can use anyone. Now listen, this is not to say that God cannot use the strong and the wise and the gifted. I love this quote that's by by actually Oswald Chambers. He says this, all throughout history, God has chosen and used nobody's because of their unusual dependence upon Him, made possible by the unique display of this power and grace. God has chosen you somebodies who were gifted only when they renounced their dependence upon their natural abilities and resources. You might say, "Gosh, I would love to be used a lot more in this church, but I'm not a very good teacher. I don't know what I can do. I don't play an instrument. I can't sing, "You know what? you're perfect." Right? Because God can use anyone. God can use those people to think, I don't have the right gifts. I don't have the right abilities. But if you come and your heart is to serve, if your heart is simply to serve and you say, whatever it takes in any way that I can, I want to serve, God will absolutely use you. All people are worthy of tremendous respect because all people are created in the image of God. Now, I realize that there's a point which we, we can be very, very angry with some people. I get that. There's some people that do stupid things. But people are worthy of respect because people are created in the image of God. And no matter who they are, we look at them and understand there is a God-shaped void within each person. There is that void that's crying out to be filled by only the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you have that chance to have a voice, when you have a chance to be around people, do you... Do you like to be perceived as the person that has strength? Or can you be perceived as the person that served? Pastor Serve had a contract with a group, and it was a big business. And we had a big contract with them. And they had a CEO. And every time I was around this CEO, I, I hated the way that I felt. Because he, he just looked down. On, I mean, he looked down on, on, on I think, almost Everybody. And I mean, his staff just rotated out, because they just didn't like to be around him. But every time I'm with him, I always think, man, you just you just love to kind of lord things over me. And it got to a point where it was so uncomfortable, I, I mean, I just broke the contract. I said, you know, I don't think we want to be involved with this group. I think it's best if we just go our separate ways. The board got smart and let him go, and they hired a guy that Came in about six months ago, and I thought, you know, I'm just gonna go meet this guy just to give him a chance, because we did have a big contract with this group. I'd like to go back and just meet him. So I checked his LinkedIn and I looked, and I thought, oh my gosh, this guy was the CEO for years and years at Mac Tools, and he became the COO at Walmart. And basically, this guy ran, ran, ran like all, all of Walmart. And then he, he I mean, like he, at, at a young age, he walks away with a lot of money. And he got to that point where he felt like, you know, I've got so many skills and abilities. I think I should be able to serve some type of a Christian ministry. So I, I walked in to meet with this guy, John, thinking, I don't know what I'm going to find. He was delightful because it was clear that he was there to serve. He couldn't have been nicer. He could have been more gracious Hey, is there any way that I can serve you, Jimmy? Is there any way that I can serve pastors through you? Is there any way that I can serve? I mean, he was, he was deferential. He was one of these guys, and I'm thinking, this is night and day. From their old CEO to this CEO, it was night and day because he had a spirit of, I want to serve. I want to help. I'm not better than you. The first guy, you always felt like he wants you to know he's better than you. This guy, he is better than me, but he had clearly was very deferential. It was amazing. And I thought, that's the kind of guy that I'd love to work with. That's the kind of guy that I'd like to be in partnership with. Is that your heart? Do you serve people in that way? Do you give in that way? Are you open and generous to say, you know what? Everything I have is from God. Everything I have is a gift from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why I love to take business leaders to Haiti. Because it's a humbling thing, because they begin to realize more and more, I have what I have by the grace of God. I don't have what I have because I've worked hard, because I'm smart, because I'm educated, all of these things. Because I introduce them to pastors in Haiti who are really smart, and they're educated, and they work harder than anybody I've ever seen in my life, and they're dirt poor. Why? Because they live in Haiti. And they're in the midst of a terrible circumstance in Haiti. We need to be humble. We need to act not childish, but have the heart of children, that we serve, that we love, that we care. But then let's go on to the call to great repentance. And then this little part where we just kind of feel like, whoa, what in the world? Because it says, woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it's necessary that these temptations come, but woe to the one by who these temptations come. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. What in the world? This will be a short point because there's not that much here, but there is a lot here. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is simply saying that the mark of true greatness is radical repentance. He's saying if there's anything in your life that's keeping you from me, take radical steps to repent of that thing and make radical changes in your life. Let me put it in terms that we, we, we might understand. I can't stop looking at porn on my smartphone. Throw your smartphone away. Get rid of it. If you're addicted to to porn because of your smartphone, get rid of your smartphone. Get a flip phone. They still make those. I can't stop watching crap on TV. Get rid of your TV. Get rid of it. Every night, I find that I'm drinking just a little bit more just to take the edge off. Then get the alcohol out of your house. Get it completely out of your house. I find that I'm more and more obsessed with money and the fact that we need more and more. Then you need to give a lot more away until you come to the point where you're dependent upon Jesus a little bit more and you understand that everything that you have is by God's grace. Take radical steps of repentance. If there's something keeping you from walking with the Lord, take radical steps to repent and get rid of it. Change some things in your life. That's what this passage is saying. People are like, really? Cut off my hand or foot? really gouge out my, yes, really, get rid of your phone. Yes, really, get rid of your TV. Yes, really, get rid of the alcohol, if that's what it takes, whatever it might be. I don't know what you're struggling with, but you need to think through the things that cause you to sin, and you need to take radical steps to get rid of those things, make some changes. That's what this passage is calling us to. It's repentance. It means to turn around to make a change in our life, and repentance is not... Just hating the consequences of your sin. Repentance is Psalm 51 four, against you, O Lord, against you, O Lord, have I sinned. Repentance understands that primarily your sin is against God. You might say, well, I've got to repent. Why? Well, because I've got to change. Because if I don't change, I want to lose my spouse. I'm going to lose my job. I want to lose my good name. I want to lose my reputation. If those are the reasons why you're trying to repent, if that's your motivation, you will never change. Because that means you just hate the consequences. And to actually repent means that you hate not just the consequences, but the sin itself and the fact that you have sinned against the Lord. We need to always be repenting. One guy that was poured into my life uh, a lot, he's been now with, with Jesus for about 15 years. Great guy, his name was Jack Miller. He's the guy that used to say to me, Hey, Jimmy, cheer up. You're worse than you think but you're more deeply loved by Jesus than you will ever possibly comprehend. That, that's, that's Jack. Jack would also ask me a question every time I saw him, every time. He would say, what are you repenting of? What are you repenting of? That's a great question. I was with a, uh, I was with a Christian leader he has, uh, five, he has five girls and all, you know, his girls have just done amazing th- things in life. And then his fifth girl, when she started college in the first week, she ran off with this man twice her age. And this guy was devastated. And I happened to be with him in Chattanooga when he got the news about his daughter leaving. And, I mean, we had a night and he was just, just sobbing. And I just remember that night, As we talked and processed, I said, Joel, if you had to do it all over, is there anything that you would do differently? And that this is a wise man. This is a wise, older Christian leader. And he said words I will never forget. He said, If I had to do it all over, I would repent more in front of my children. Wow. That's powerful. I would repent more in front of my children. So, friends, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. Confess your failure to repent. <laughs> Confess that. Because nothing prepares us to deal with the failure in our life than just to throw it all into this big, loving arms of a graceful God. And to say, God, I want to repent. Help, help me to repent of these things. Help me to take radical steps. Help me to take radical steps of repentance to be right with you. And then third... A picture of great love. The Lord says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Once again, again, this is that word, macron. it's it's the weak, it's the lowly. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now people think, wait a second, this, this is unbelievable news. Does this mean that I have a guardian angel? Okay, bad news and good news. There's no evidence in Scripture that you have a guardian angel. There's no verse that says that you have a guardian angel. That's the bad news, right? You want the good news? You have an entourage of angels around you. It says it's all over Scripture, Hebrews 1, 14. I, I could go all throughout Scripture. There is an entourage of angels assigned to each one of you. You don't have a guardian angel. You have an entourage of angels around you. You have a team of angels around you. They're watching over you. They're caring for you. And so it's a great promise. It's a great promise. It, it doesn't say angel. It says angels There are angels out there that are just there to watch over us. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Interesting that that's a command that's stated in the negative. Why wouldn't Jesus say that in the positive? Why why wouldn't he say, hey, here's, here's what you need to do. Esteem these little ones. Admire these little ones. Respect these little ones. Who are weak and they can do nothing for you? Why what why does he say, do not despise one of these little ones? Because the Lord knows our heart so well. He knows the way that we're gonna miss, we're just gonna miss this. We're gonna we're gonna mess this up. The Lord knows. It's powerful. The fact that God absolutely knows our heart. Are you kind and patient to those people without power? without status. Because if I really want to get to know you, and if you really want to get to know me, I'm not going to watch you as you interact after church with Chris. That's not going to help me. You're going to get to know me, and I want to get to know you if I watch you with, uh, with, with like a barista at Starbucks, with a worker at Target, with a person who works at the DMV, with the guy behind the counter at Quick Trip. Those people that you oftentimes perceive to be a little bit Lower than you, the Missouri sports fan. It might be, no, that was just, I'm just trying to make sure you're still awake. I'm just trying to make sure you're still with me here. Waiters and waitresses, hotel maids, TSA workers, how do you treat these people? How do you treat the uneducated? How do you treat the homeless? How do you treat the people that has the sign that says, hey, I need some help, I need some food? It's interesting because if you're at the point that you think maybe I need to be around people a little bit more that the world would view as very lowly. Let me give you a very practical thing that you could do. There's a great ministry in Kansas City. I think it's one of the best ministries I've ever seen in my life. It's called Freedom Fire. We've I mean, got some folks here that have done work for years and years at Freedom Fire. Every Monday night, 6.15... Underneath the bridge at First and Grand, they have a worship service for the homeless. And people will come out of the woods who live right there. They're like all right there in the woods. They're going to come out of the woods and they're going to come and be a part of this worship service. If you want to have a great night, go to this. It's called the Worship Wagon. And they bring church to the homeless. And you could go and you could be a part of this. It's one of the greatest things that's done in Kansas City. Every Monday night. And they've done this now for about a decade. There was only one week that they missed. And that was because it was like 15 below and there was an ice storm. And they just could, could not get there. But I mean rain or shine, heat or extreme cold, they're there. Every Monday night, 615 Worship Wagon. I, I would encourage you to go and to meet the homeless. To be with them and to understand I can show them Love and respect because they've been created in the image of God. I can go and I can be with these people. And then all of a sudden, there's this huge change in the metaphor. And all of a sudden, it's about sheep. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. I love the fact that it talks about the one who goes astray. Jesus could have very, very easily said, hey, you know what? This is about the five that go astray. So there's five that go astray and he leaves the 95 and he goes in search of the five. That's, it's the one. The one. And the one might be you. Jesus is that passionate for us. He pursues us in this way. I love the, 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 the words of Tim Keller when he says this. Jesus is the only shepherd that we have ever known who went after the lost sheep by becoming a sheep. You see, Jesus was at the very highest point possible. And then on the cross, he sunk down to the very lowest place that we could ever possibly know so that we could absolutely become great because of the fact that Jesus Christ went low. The fact that Jesus Christ became weak, we can be strong. The fact that Jesus Christ gave his life means that we can have life. Jesus is making very clear that as he pursues that one, he pursues that one because he loves you so much. There's such an individual passionate love towards you. True, true greatness is truly believing the gospel. It's living the gospel. It's interesting because there is a revival right now all over the world. There is a revival. I mean, the gospel is growing around the world like never before. And you know where it's growing? Amongst the weak. Amongst the outcasts. It's growing like never before throughout Latin America, throughout parts of South America, throughout almost all of Africa, throughout so many parts of Asia. Those areas that have been left behind in many ways, Australia, Western Europe, and the USA. Why? Because we have so much stuff here. We have so much stuff. We we don't need to depend upon the Lord because we've got stuff. And Jesus is saying, no, have the heart of a child. Become more and more dependent upon me. See that everything that you have has got to absolutely come from me. Because unless you change and convert and become like a child, Jesus is spelling out, here's how you become a Christian. Here's how you get saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Become like a child. He's making that extremely clear. Salvation can only be received with simplicity. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't do all of these things. So how do we become like a little child? It's incredibly hard, especially in the USA, because we've got so many counselors, so many psychologists who are saying, come and see me, and I want to help you process life. And the message that you're going to hear from many people who are outside of the gospel is this. You know what? You are not condemned because you are not guilty. And so you're going to hear that message over and over again. You're not guilty. Sadly, you're going to hear that same message from from some churches that don't preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're going to preach, hey, it's okay because you're not guilty. Here's the good news of the gospel. We are guilty. We're guilty of sin. We're guilty of failing in so many ways. And we are not condemned. Romans 8, chapter 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. You were not condemned because of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not condemned. Do you believe that? But remember, your debt just did not vanish into thin air. Jesus Christ was betrayed and condemned and gave his life upon the cross. So that you would know the benefits of the kingdom of heaven, and yet we struggle to grasp childlike faith. We have such a hard time because we come up not good enough. I just have to try harder. I, to harder. I want to pray harder. I want to give more. I probably have, you know, committed a sin which more and more It's going to lead. That's going to lead to. It's going to, lead to lame, as far as compensation, and it brings us to a point in life where we so often begin to hate ourselves. And I realize if we were on day, I tried so hard to and hate myself for it. So we try to justify our situation, we try to rationalize it. Hey, you know what? Just do my very best. That'll be good enough. I'm, I know that I'm not a good person. But gosh, there's a whole lot of people out there that are a lot worse than I am. God, God knows I'm not perfect, but gosh, I hope he knows I'm trying. I'm trying to love Jesus, but gosh, I make mistake after mistake after mistake. And I know that God is angry with me. Did you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like, you know, I just don't think God wants anything to do with me because it seems like everything I do for him is tainted. Every offering I bring to him is tainted. Every life act that I try to do for him, I, I know it's tainted. And I think that he rejects me. I would guess that in a crowd this size, there would be many of you that might feel that God feels that way about you. I'm very blessed to have five amazing daughters that I would give my life for. I mean, I mean, my wife and I have been very, very blessed. And my youngest is Allie, who's back here this morning. I asked her if I could share a little bit, and she said yes. I don't want you to think I'm just, I mean, like embarrassing her. But when Allie was much smaller, uh, she made me some beautiful cards. When she was like four or five, and she was just starting to learn to draw and to write and things like this. And she gave me uh, these amazing cards. And I want to show you this card upon the screen. I got that from Allie. Is that not, is that just not the best? I mean, I mean, like I got that and I thought, I'm, I'm going to save this for the rest of my life. And then there was this card attached to it, and the card was just the best. To Dad from Allie, I love you so much. And I will never stop loving you. And I love you with my whole heart. Now, I want to give you two scenarios, and we're going to vote, Okay. Scenario number one. I said, Allie, sweetheart, can you learn to spell, my gosh, <laughs> Allie, love? I believe there's an E on the end of love. And can you get your lines a little bit straight? It's like, you know, we're on this down slope constantly. If you would have thought a little bit ahead, you would have had right, you know, you would have had room to write I love you so much. I will never stop loving you, sweetheart. There's no, there's no E in loving, L-O-V-I-N-G. And I love you with my whole heart, H-O-L-E-H-A-R-T. Allie, come on, baby. You're going to have to work on this. I want you to go. I want you to correct this. Make it right and then come back to me. That's, that's option A. Here's option B. <laughs> I just m- melted. I melted. It's like I will save this for the rest of my life. I will never get rid of this. Okay, let's vote. How many of you think that I responded with option A? Don't you dare raise your hand. All right. How many of you think it was option B? When it comes to you and God, why do you think it's option A for you? Why? Why have you convinced yourself that God sees you? Option A, get it right. Get it right and then come back to me. Why do we think that we are better parents than God? Why do we think that we treat our children better than God treats us? Do you realize how much God loves you? He knows your love gifts to him will be tainted. He knows they will be. And it still melts him. God sees sees you as option B. That's how he responds to you. That's how much he loves you, how much he cares for you. And so as we come to this table this morning, we're reminded as we partake of the Lord's Supper, you don't come up here and you're thinking, gosh, I've done all these things this week. I hope that I'm acceptable to God. I want to take these elements because I hope that I'm acceptable to God. No, we take these elements because we understand that God absolutely is melted in his heart by our love for him, even though it's tainted, even though we're going to make mistakes, even though we're going to sin, even though we're going to do so many things wrong. But God wants to show you the depths of his love in ways that maybe we haven't even experienced. We need to come to him with a childlike faith. A childlike faith which allows us to be great in the eyes of God. It allows us to be great. But it's not the world's definition. It's God's definition, and it's very different. Jesus Christ did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ came to serve. That's why he's here. That's why Jesus Christ is the greatest leader that we will ever know. The greatest leader that we will ever know took a towel wrapped it around his waist, and washed the feet of his disciples. This meal is for those who love Jesus Christ. This meal is for those who understand that their love gifts towards the Lord will be tainted, but that the Lord still loves us. It's for those who have surrendered all to him and who can come with a childlike faith. So as you come and you partake of the bread and the cup, I would encourage you, to know that God is for you. God cares for you. God loves you. He's crazy about you, and you melt his heart. That's how much he loves you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you spell out for us what it means to be great. Father, you tell us that you love us so much that you're going to come after us. Father, and there might be people here this morning, they're, they're the one sheep that has that has left the fold and they're right now they're running. And they know in their heart that they're running and they need to be brought back to you. So, Father, we pray that this would be a day that they would come back and say, Lord, once again, I want to surrender my heart and my life and my whole being to you. Father, we live in a world that has screwed up the definition of greatness massively. To mean power and strength and all of these other things. But, Father, may we understand you love to use the weak things of this world. You love to use the despised things of this world for your glory. So, Father, may every person here know without question that they can be deeply used by you because they are deeply loved by you. So may our eyes be upon Jesus, and may we come with a childlike faith now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.